I'm Kate Parker. This is Warming Signs, a podcast with the sound minds of science. Last week, Russia released the last of 97 whales that were being held in what has been dubbed whale jail. But what kind of environment are they being released into? Is their natural habitat in the Arctic going to continue to be habitable in the future? I spoke with Charles Vinnick of the Whale Sanctuary Project. He not only was involved firsthand with the release of those Russian whales, he actually used to work with the famed ocean explorer Jacques Cousteau and has been working to keep our oceans habitable for sea life for four decades. Charles, thank you so much for taking a moment to chat with me. Thank you, Kate. I'm pleased to be here. So we have so much going on right now in the way of good news, as we've heard that these some, you know, near 100 whales have been released in their entirety from Russia. Can you take me through how that began and how we got to this point? Well, you're correct. It's a momentous event for all of these whales to have been released back to the wild. This is the largest release of cetaceans from captivity ever. So it's very special. And I think it came about mostly because of the Russian activists. More than a million people who began to write letters when they learned of this capture from last summer, a year ago. Uh, And they wrote letters, they wrote petitions, they made their voices heard throughout Russia. And that enabled all of us in the international community to learn about it as well. And then we were able to join with them in, in some ways, pressuring the Russian government. But because Jean-Michel Cousteau, myself, and others were able to reach out to the Russian government, not only in protest, as the activists were doing, but in a spirit of cooperation and offering to provide assistance to the Russian government for evaluating the health of the animals and setting up protocols for how they could be released. So in that way, we had the Russian activists putting pressure on the government, and we had people in the international community offering to help as well. That together, I think, opened some doors that may not have been opened otherwise. And I think that's the real special story about how this began and how it proceeded through to a very successful release of all the animals. What does release look like for these animals? I mean, is it just we cut open the, you know, places that they're being contained and just let them swim out into the ocean? Or is it more of a concerted effort? Well, it's a very complicated effort. And that is because the animals were being held in an environment. uh, The largest city that people know of nearby would be Vladivostok, about three and a half hours from Vladivostok in what the press designated as the whale jail. And there were 87 belugas and 10 orca there at the time they started the release. And that was more than a thousand kilometers from where the whales were captured. So in terms of looking forward to their best success in release and reintroduction to the wild, it's important to take them back to the area where they were captured and where there are conspecific, other animals of the same type that would help them reacclimate to the environment and capture food and the like. 
So the initial releases that began on June 20th, when President and Premier Putin announced that the release had begun, when they took the first eight belugas and two orcas, they took them back that thousand miles. So that was a journey by truck, by barge, on rivers, and on roads that took seven days. So that's a tremendous transport. And so the coordination of that that effort, which we offered to assist with as well, we weren't needed. And what the Russian government did is actually hire the people who had captured the whales because they knew how to take them back the same way they had brought them. So people weren't necessarily pleased with that decision to hire the captors, but they had the expertise. And so that made an appropriate approach from the Russian government point of view, and that worked. And they did that for taking eventually all the orcas and a number of the belugas, some 37 of them, back to that area where they were captured. Then as this progressed, and they did it step by step because they couldn't take all the animals at any one time, they took them in groups of 12, of 16, in one case 19. And then earlier this week, they took in two or three different transports the rest of the belugas, the last 50 belugas in three transports, but those they took to an area roughly 150 miles from where the where they were being held uh, in the whale jail. And the reason for that is that the weather had become too tough to actually make the whole journey back to where they were oh. captured. So these and last change the belugas pros- are in a different area. Does that change the prospects for how those belugas may reacclimate. I think it, we don't know the answer to that. I think that's a challenge, and that's the reason that both the activists and ourselves, through each of our own channels of communication with the Russian Scientific Institute and the government, have called for as much monitoring as can possibly be done, both of the whales that were up in uh, the Salakin area, where they were first captured, as well as this group of belugas that are in a different area. So we can follow them and learn about how they readapt to the wild. And we don't know the answer. It's certainly more challenging, but these animals have been in captivity for a relatively short period of time, and they should be able to reacclimate readily, but they will certainly have challenges that we need to learn more about. Why were these whales captured and held in the first place? What is the driving force behind that? The driving force behind all of the captures today of whales, uh, and primarily these would be orcas and belugas, even some dolphin, is for performance parks and mostly in China. So all of these whales were captured to be sold to Chinese performance parks where they would perform for their supper and for the public's entertainment. That seems and, like geez. just a massive number of whales, but you're saying that there is that big of a demand for it in China? There is. And what's happening in China is that there are, on average, they're building a marine park and other entertainment parks on an average of once a week. So there's what? a tremendous building going on of all kinds of entertainment, and that includes. Uh, entertainment parks that are marine parks with dolphins, with whales, with walruses. And the demand is quite high. So 100 whales of this nature might have been as much as $100 million of trade. Whoa. 
that's just mind-boggling to me. I had no idea, especially whenever, you know, from my perspective, I feel as though in other parts of the world we've seen a decrease in the number of whales and dolphins that are held captive. This feels you're like You're exactly right. No, you're exactly right. There's been an, a change in the ethic about how we think about uh, treating animals in captivity. We've seen zoos no longer having uh, elephants and large, large animals in them. We've seen the closing of circus acts and the like. So we've seen for large marine mammals on land that this has changed quite rapidly. We're also seeing that in marine parks. Canada this past year, uh, this year, earlier this year, passed a law forbidding the capture and performance of whales and dolphins in parks. And we're seeing legislation like that in other parts of the world. But it is the case that China is still importing animals of this nature for performance. And I think even there, the ethic is changing. But at the same time, the, the rising middle class and the like is looking for more entertainment. And it will take some longer period of time for us to change and help change the perspective on how animals are kept and what they're asked to do. Uh, in certain parts of the world, and that includes China today, and that's why Russia at this moment has not outlawed the capture of whales and dolphins mm -hmm. for performance and sale. You know, even here in Atlanta, Channel, Atlanta, Georgia, where the Weather Channel is based, um, it's the we have the largest by volume aquarium in the world, and. I'm sure you know all of this, but there are a number of dolphins, beluga whales, whale sharks, all present in that aquarium. Now, people bring young kids there for educational purposes. Do you think that that is, is doing more harm than good, having aquariums like that? Well, I think certainly what the aquarium would say is that they are introducing children to these animals, and therefore they're helping children and adults have an affinity for the animals and therefore they will protect them. I think unfortunately that the educational value of that is truly limited because what it really shows children, particularly the performance of the, of the animals, is that we can dominate them and it, uh, it doesn't provide any understanding of the autonomy of these animals and their natural culture. Beluga whales, live in families, just like orca. And they live in big groups, larger than, than the groups that pods that orca live in. But they're very social, they're highly communicative, and they live with their offspring and their, their siblings throughout their lives. So when we break those bonds up and put them in environments like the aquarium in, in Georgia, uh, those are artificial groupings. And so they're not, they don't have the space, they don't have the room, they don't have any of the enrichment that comes from being in nature. Their enrichment is from interacting with people. And it just, it is not healthy for them. They die much quicker than they die in the wild. And so I think the educational value of that is really backwards. And I think over time, all of these facilities should move these animals to sanctuaries and I'm privileged to be part of a group and managing an organization called the Whale Sanctuary Project, which is looking to create the first sanctuary in North America for beluga whales or 
orca on the west coast, beluga on the east coast, where we can move animals from captivity to a natural seaside environment that's more than 300 times the size of the largest performance tank in captivity. I love that that is in the works. I personally, so I personally, as a child, I wanted to be a marine biologist. I'm literally <laughs> obsessed with porpoises and whales and, you know, all sea creatures. I just, I love them. Um, so I love hearing about that. Is there any worry that you may have more distressed animals in the future because of the changes that we're seeing in our ocean from climate change? Well, I don't think there's any question that we will see continued stress on all species, including ourselves, but certainly on marine species from climate change. When you're seeing the temperature of oceans change as rapidly as it is, that affects the environment for these animals. It affects their food supply, so they have to search in different environments for their food. We're seeing lots of cases where animals are being are moving to other environments than they've been in before, particularly marine animals. The stories that are coming out of the Arctic, the stories that are coming out of Greenland in terms of the amount of ice that is melting, that's changing not only the temperature, but some of the circulation patterns at a rate that's different than we anticipated even 10 years ago. 10 years ago, we were saying, let's look ahead to 2050 for these kind of changes. Now scientists are talking about 2030. So that kind of rapid rate of change puts undue stress not only on ourselves as we look to our future, but certainly on all species and particularly those that are in the marine environment. So we have to be prepared to help them. We have to understand what's happening and we have to figure out how best to help them. And so I think people like ourselves, you spoke earlier with Jean-Michel Cousteau, teams of people that I work with, marine biologists and others, need to figure out how we can best help them intervene when we need to, but intervene in ways that protect them and their natural environment and their ability to live in the natural environment in every way. As you may have heard Charles briefly mention there, I did in fact speak with Jean-Michel Cousteau, son of Jacques Cousteau, who has been diving beneath the waves since he was seven years old. In fact, he is the longest diving human on Earth with 74 years experience. So safe to say, he's seen some things. I wanted to get his take on the topic of change. What has been the biggest change that you have seen in your lifetime? Well, it's not one change. Unfortunately, there are places where I used to go when I was a kid in the Mediterranean Sea and later on in other parts of the world, like uh, in the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean and so on. And uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, uh, we overfishing. We're taking more than nature can produce. Uh, we need to keep in mind that every species, plants and animals, is the capital and we cannot take more than uh, the interest produced by the capital. Um, unfortunately, we do that. And then uh, all our pollution affecting many of the species and the coral reefs, uh, which are very critical for thousands of species, for protection, for food, and so on, are disappearing. There are places where 50% of the coral reefs are dead. 
uh, well, 20%, 25%. Unfortunately, this is happening today, and uh, it wasn't that way when I was a child. And when I was uh, diving at the age of uh, 10, 15, 20, uh, and uh, I've seen a lot of chantres taking place in different parts of the world because I keep going back to those places. Do you think that that change is really driven by, you know, is it our pollution, the overfishing, is climate change having an impact? Well, of course. We are completely responsible for the acceleration of the climate change and <clears throat> the emission of CO2, uh, the, the carbon dioxide, uh, what goes in space uh, from our cars, from uh, the industries and the consumption of fuel and so on, and uh, the uh, creation of energy as well. And then uh, all of that ends up in the ocean and uh, affects uh, all life. Uh, it goes into the uh, water. It uh, goes down to the bottom of it where the plants are. Um, and uh, phytoplankton, which are the food for the zooplankton, which are eaten by the bigger creatures and the bigger creatures Otherwise, we catch and we put in our plate and we are bringing back some of that pollution to ourselves. Let's mm -hmm. not forget that every other breath of air that we take is coming from the ocean. Uh, and that is being affected, of course. And then we have also the uh, uh, acidification uh, of uh, mm -hmm. many parts of the ocean where uh, plants which normally are animals and creatures that normally were growing have a very hard time to, to do it because of this uh, acidification. So uh, we really need to uh, change the way we do it. We can do it, otherwise I wouldn't be answering your questions. You're not going to find more years of ocean experience than Mr. Cousteau. Now let's get back to Charles to see if our Arctic marine mammals have any chance of adapting in a changing world. I, it just seems to me like we've had we have this rapid change occurring and you and I, whenever the weather changes, we can go to we can turn up our thermostat, we can make it warmer in our home, we can make it cooler. We can go to the grocery store and get whatever food we want, regardless of whether it's in season. We have access to all these things, but it seems as though these animals that have evolved to exist in certain, in certain climates of our ocean, certain uh, features and temperatures and salinity and all these things, with a rapid change happening in the course of a generation or maybe two of some of these creatures, I mean, is that even possible to survive? Can we help them adapt faster or is this just the reality? Well, we are the only species that has the ability to decide whether or not we go extinct because we can change, as you've described, lots of things about our environment and about how we live in the environment. Animals adapt as well. I mean, they have adapted through all kinds of things over time. But their numbers change. We've seen in the southern resident orca off the coast of Seattle in the whole Puget Sound area, that whole area, there are now 74 remaining southern residents. 
They haven't had solid and surviving births of more than a couple of animals since 2015. So that's a group of whales, a particular three pods that we've been studying for 50 years that in many ways are on a path to extinction because all of their food supply has changed and they haven't adapted as fast to where that food supply may now be. That's the primary impact on them. But they're being impacted by human noise of shipping. They're being impacted by development because the environment is being impacted by the numbers of people who live along the shores and the industry and the like. So we've had a tremendous impact on the environment as well. And now we're seeing nature having an impact on it from human activity as climate change also occurs. So I think the stresses on these animals is tremendous. Can we make a difference? Yes. Can we make a difference in a sufficient time? We don't know. But if we don't try, we will have the opposite impact, and they will all perish. Is there anything that either, you know, the people that you work with and the projects that you work on, or perhaps just that you're seeing happen as a trend across the globe that gives you hope? Well, I, you know, I, I wake up every morning with great hope and great optimism. And in part, it's because of children. Every time I have an opportunity to talk to young, young people, and I've got a group in Calgary, fifth and sixth graders, that are enthralled with the Whale Sanctuary Project, and they contact us all the time, and we're their school project again this year. And you talk to young kids, and they are excited about the future. They are far more open than some of us who are older to change. They're creative. We're seeing young people talk at the UN. We're seeing social media be used in ways to communicate that I never dreamed would be possible and communicate positive ideas. So our hope is in young people and in providing them a path to understanding that we will be with them creating technology, creating ideas, and changing our behavior so that the way of life we've been privileged to have, they can also have. That is just a beautiful thought to end on. Thank you so much, Charles, for taking the time to walk me through all of these different issues. Well, thank you, Kate. Pleased to be with you and look forward to talking to you again. If you like Warming Signs, subscribe. We publish every other Tuesday and you will wake up with a brand new episode ready to listen to on your commute to work. I really appreciate you being a part of the Warming Signs family. Tweet at me, talk to me. Let's have a conversation. Until next Tuesday. Bye-bye.